Chapter 3 of One Third Off. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Brian Ness. One Third Off by Irvin S. Cobb. Chapter 3. Regarding Liver-Eating Watkins and Others. It was after I had moved to New York and had taken a desk job that I detected myself in the act, as it were, of plumping out. Cognizant of the fact, as I was, I nevertheless took no curative or corrective measures in the way of revising my diet. I was content to make excuses inwardly. I said to myself that I came of a breed whose members, in their mature years, were inclined to broaden noticeably. I said to myself that I was not getting the amount of exercise that I once had, that my occupation was now more sedentary, and therefore it stood to reason that I should take on a little flesh here and there over my frame. Moreover, I felt good. If I had felt any better, I could have charged admission. My appetite was perfect, my digestion magnificent, nay, awe-inspiring. To me it seemed that physically I was just as active and agile as I had been in those prentice years of my professional career when the ability to shift quickly from place to place and to think with an ornithological aptitude were conducive to a continuance of unimpaired health among young reporters. Anyhow, thus I to myself in the same strain continuing, anyhow I was not actually getting fat, nothing so gross as that, I merely was attaining to a pleasant, a becoming, and a dignified fullness of contour as I neared my thirtieth birthday. So why worry about what was natural and normal among persons of my temperament and having my hereditary impulses upon attaining a given age? I am convinced that men who are getting fat are generally like that. For every added pound, an added excuse. For each multiplying inch at the waistline, a new plea in abatement to be set up in the mind. I see the truth of it now. When you start getting fat, you start getting fatuous with the indubitable proof of his infirmity mounting in superimposed folds of tissue before his very gaze, with the rounded evidence present right there in front of him where he can rest his elbows on it, your average fattish man nevertheless refuses to acknowledge the visible situation. Vanity blinds his one eye, love of self-indulgence blinds the other. Observe now how I speak in the high moral tone of a reformed offender, which is the way of reformed offenders and other reformers the world over. We are always most virtuous in retrospect, as the fact of the crime recedes. Moreover, he who has not erred has but little to gloat over. There are two sorts of evidence upon which many judges look askance, that sort of evidence which is circumstantial, and that sort which purely is hearsay. In this connection, and departing for the space of a paragraph or so from the main theme, I am reminded of the incident through which a certain picturesque gentleman of the early days in California acquired a name which he was destined to wear forever after, and under which his memory is still affectionately insisted in the traditions of our great far west. I refer to the late liver-eating Watkins. Mr. Watkins entered into active life and passed through a good part of it bearing the unilluminative and commonplace first name of Elmer or Lemuel, or perhaps it was Jasper, just which one of these or some other I forgot now, but no matter, at least it was some such. One evening a low-down terracotta-colored Piute swiped two of Mr. Watkins's paint ponies and by stealth, under cover of the cloaking of twilight, went away with them into the far mysterious spaces of the purpling sage. 
To these ponies the owner was deeply attached, not alone on account of the intrinsic value, but for sentimental reasons likewise, so immediately on discovering the loss the next morning, Mr. Watkins took steps. He saddled a third pony, which the thief had somehow overlooked in the haste of departure, and he girded on him both cutlery and shootlery, and he mounted and soon was off and away across the desert upon the trail of the vanished malefactor. Now when Mr. Watkins fared forth thus accoutred, it was a sign he was not out for his health or anybody else's. Friends and well-wishers volunteered to accompany him upon the chase, for they foresaw brisk doings, but he declined their company. Folklore, descending from his generation to ours, has it that he said this was his own business, and he preferred handling it alone in his own way. He did add, however, that on overtaking the fugitive it was his intention, as an earnest or token of his displeasure, to eat that engine's liver raw. Some versions say he mentioned liver rare, but the commonly accepted legend has it that the word used was raw. With this he put the spur to his steed's flank, and was soon but a mere moving speck in the distance. Now there was never offered any direct proof that our hero, in pursuance of his plan for teaching the Indian a lesson, actually did do, with regard to the latter's liver, what he had promised the bystanders he would do. Moreover, touching on this detail, he ever thereafter maintained a steadfast and unbreakable silence. In lieu of corroborative testimony by unbiased witnesses as to the act itself, we have only these two things to judge by. First, that when Mr. Watkins returned in the dusk of the same day, he was wearing upon his face a well-fed, not to say satiated, expression, yet had started forth that morning with no store of provisions, and second, that on being found in a deceased state some days later, the Paiute, who, when last previously seen, had with him two of Mr. Watkins's pintos, and one liver of his own, was now shy all three. By these facts, a strong presumptive case having been made out, Mr. Watkins was thenceforth known not as Ezekiel or Emmanuel or whatever his original first name had been, but as liver-eating or among friends by the affectionate diminutive of live for short. This I would regard as a typical instance of the value of a chain of good circumstantial evidence with no essential link lacking. Direct testimony could hardly have been more satisfactory, all things considered, and yet direct testimony is the best sort there is in the law courts and out. On the other hand, hearsay evidence is viewed legally and often by the layman with suspicion, in most causes of action being barred out altogether. Nevertheless, it is a phase of the faddish man's perversity that rejecting the direct, the circumstantial, and the circumferential testimony which abounds about him, he too often awaits confirmation of his growing suspicions at the hands of outsiders and bystanders, before he is willing openly to admit that condition of fatness which for long has been patent to the most casual observer. Women, as I have observed them, are even more disposed to avoid confession on this point, a woman somehow figures that so long as she refuses to acknowledge to herself or any other interested party that she has progressed out of the ranks of the plumpened into the congested and overflowing realms of the avowedly obese, why, for just so long may she keep the rest of the world in ignorance too. I take it the ostrich which first set the example to all other ostriches of trying to avoid detection by the enemy through the simple expedient of sticking its head in the sand was a lady ostrich, and moreover one typical of her sex. But men are bad enough, I know that I was. 
End of chapter 3, recorded by Brian Ness.